Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Will you stand with me and let's turn in the Word of God together to Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of God. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and keep, but do not do according to their deeds for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called instructors, for one is your instructor. That is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is eternal and true, and it comes to us by your spirit, and in this instance, Father, spoken directly by Christ. We pray, Father, that we'll heed his words. I ask that they may not be my words, but his and yours by the Spirit, with power, bringing conviction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're looking at this group of men who are the, the misanthropes of the world, the haters of mankind, the deadliest creatures in creation. The Pharisees, good teachers, teachers who teach well. They have great biblical truth, and they're dead, and they breed death, and there's no life. They have a form of godliness, but no power at all. They have great teaching. So I want to dispense with a few of these statements in this passage that may be confusing to you and say to you they're not that confusing. You may wonder what the phylacteries are. They're those things that contain the word of God that were worn on the forehead by observant Jews. Still today you might see them at times in Jerusalem by the Orthodox. The tassels of their garments were simply a reminder of their status. These men had broad phylacteries, like they're filled with the Word of God, lengthy tassels, and they love the chief seats and the most prominent places. They, they're just like you and me. They want to be near the front. They want to be recognized. They don't want to be put at the seat at the wedding banquet that's at the way back. They take the chief seats. They expect them. But Jesus says to his followers, you know, these men love these things, 
But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are our brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Don't be called instructors, for one is your instructor, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. He's not saying here that it's not appropriate to be called a father if you're a father. This is not a, a literal statement where you have to abjure the term father, because Jesus says, do not be called father. What Jesus is saying is that, look, this desire for status, this desire to be prominent and to be chief, to be known as the great teacher, should never be your desire. You must turn aside from this kind of self-elevation and the desire to be elevated by others. It's not a statement that you can't call anyone a teacher. Jesus is routinely called teacher. In the rest of the New Testament, the gift of teaching is given and a teacher is called a teacher. The one who teaches is a teacher. It's not that. What it's saying here is that your goal is not to be the kind of person who delights in titles and phylacteries and long tassels on your garments in the prominent seats like these men, these misanthropes, these haters of mankind, these killers of men. Now you say, ah, David, they're not that bad. Well, yes, they are. They're every bit as bad as I've said and worse. Jesus, in his ministry, spends more time opposing these men than all the rest combined. In the chapter that we're beginning, Jesus goes on and pronounces a series of eight woes against the Pharisees. It is perhaps the most prolonged sermon in the Gospels other than the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a diatribe or a Jeremiah a statement of woe and judgment against one group of people. Jesus spends more time on them than he spends on almost anything else in one sustained blast. They are wicked men. They are dangerous. Jesus has <laughs> recorded not one word about the Romans or Pilate or the soldiers, the occupiers, not a word. But he is fierce against these men. Why? Well, because they're the haters of mankind. They hate mankind. Why? Because they clothe themselves in the clothes of godliness and they don't love God. They claim the seats of the godly and they don't have the power of God. They proclaim themselves the teachers of God's truth and they do teach it but they don't know it, <laughs> and they're absent the power of it. And so what they do is they declare to the whole world as the preeminent preachers of God and his things that God is a shell, that his, his kingdom is a mirage, that God is a fantasy, and they place themselves in the seat of God. They say, God, 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 but actually they're saying, me, me, me. A very common thing, something that we need to be on guard against, something that we need to recognize is going on all over the place today. And it's a danger that we must be on guard against as a church, Pharisaism. Now let me speak to you about the Pharisee. You may have a little Pharisee in you, if you have a certain inward regard for Gore Vidal, 
Gore Vidal, a famous gay writer, and uh, in some ways said some of the truest things ever written. One of the things that he said that most of you have probably heard, or many of you have probably heard, is that when a friend succeeds, he wrote, a little part of me dies. When a friend succeeds, a little part of me dies. This is the human nature. This is the nature of the Pharisee. They are envious men. They hate the success of others. If it's not their success, it's failure. It's the heart of the Pharisees. The world to them is a zero-sum game. Any success that is not theirs is their loss. And every time Jesus heals someone, and every time Jesus preaches and the crowds gather, and every time people listen to Jesus, every time the people praise Jesus, and especially during the triumphal entry as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and the people praise him and call him hail to the son of David, there is a big chunk of them that atrophies and falls off. You know, they're dying. Every success of Jesus is an atrophy of their own lives and the death. And parts of them have fallen off all over the place as Jesus has been working. And now they're at the end and they're saying, we've got to kill him, we've got to kill him. He's killing us, we've got to kill him. He's killing us, this man is killing us, he's killing us. And they think, we've got to kill him. We've got to kill him or we're going to die. Because their whole life, their whole meaning in life is predicated on them being the chief ones. And Jesus is tearing them apart. So Christ comes at them and he comes at them. One of the fiercest displays in scripture is is found in the verses that we're going to be looking at in coming weeks. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. In some ways, this is scarier than the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Jesus leaves them in their position, but he says the day is coming. The day is coming. It's easier to die and to know that God is putting you to death than to have a delayed punishment and say, God is against you. Can you imagine leading out the rest of your life, living, knowing that you are at enmity with God and God is opposed to you? Wouldn't you rather die now than compound your sin than to live in rebellion? Jesus leaves them but pronounces their judgment. It is a fierce portion of scripture. And in this chapter, Jesus speaks about the Pharisees. And so I want to speak to you about the Pharisees and what we have in the verses that begin before he turns to the woes. These first 12 verses is kind of... uh, a prosecutor's opening statement and a warning to his disciples and his followers. He's in the temple. Uh, There have been the series of tests that we have looked at over the last few weeks that have taken place. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Sadducees by themselves, then the Pharisees by themselves. Finally, this one last test is just one Pharisee who seems to be a part of a group, but he's a more honest man. And so we have these series of tests, and the Pharisees are at the center of them, and then Jesus finally speaks to the crowds and his disciples, and he speaks to them about the nature of these men who have been coming against them, and he doesn't say anything nice. It's a series of woes, and here in the first 12 verses, it's sort of a summation. He's giving his, as a prosecutor, his opening statement, I'm going to prove to you this, 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 this is who these men are. And, and so I want us to think about what Phariseeism is and is not. 
based on what Jesus says in these verses. Because we need to be very clear about what Pharisaism is and not attack it as something that it's not. We live in a day when Phariseeism is equated in Twitter and in books and articles with two terms that are not found in the Bible but are used as synonyms for Phariseeism. One of those terms is legalism, and that is the term that most of us have heard. More recently, in the last 20 years, legalism has not been used to speak of the sin of the Pharisees so much as another term that has, is seeking to replace legalism. Both of these terms, by the way, are not found in the Bible, all right? They're a, a way of shorthand speaking about the sin of the Pharisees. The, the term that's become more common is moralism. All right? So legalism, moralism, these are the terms. When you hear them, they're code terms for Phariseeism. You'll see them constantly used to describe the sin of the Pharisees. They were legalists or they were moralists. It's not what the Bible describes these men as. And I think it's, it's important that we recognize where these terms come from and what, they, what is meant by them and how they could be in a quiet way leading us in a direction that is not true. Legalism has been rejected because, um, because legalism was tied to a movement in the, in the church that is basically defeated and dead. Uh, not totally, and there are still churches that preach this form of legalism, but legalism is called uh, legalism because it's saying you must, you must not, you must, you must not, all right? As though the Pharisees went around saying you must and you must not, you must and you must not. And typically, a person was called a legalist in decades gone by if they said a certain set of things that the Bible does not forbid are forbidden to you, all right? And so... Um, you were a legalist, and I think it was a, maybe a helpful word, maybe not. I, I would always prefer not to use a term, but rather to describe the actual sin, because it's very easy to say to someone, well, you're a, you're a Nazi, when they have nothing to do with Nazism, but it's just a way of saying, I hate you, right? You know, I don't like what you do, and I don't like what you stand for. You're a Nazi. Vladimir Putin says he's going in to denazify the Ukraine. And you go, what? The president of the Ukraine is a Jew, right? What's a Nazi about a Jew? But it's a term of hatred. I think legalism is the same kind of term. And, and it would be far better to say that you have made rules that the Bible doesn't make, okay? But those rules, as they, as they were taught, involved the series of things, a series of things that that you likely have not grown up being told are sinful. You, you are not allowed to, to drink, all right? Alcohol, by the old style of legalism, is wrong. You are never allowed to taste alcohol. No Christian should ever take a drink. Now, there may be some here this morning who were raised in that atmosphere. But it's not the atmosphere of our day, is it? You know, we would say we're a conservative Bible-believing church, and I've been at a number of our weddings, and they have alcohol. And so 
this is not a problem in our church. Uh, not, maybe drinking is a problem, but saying you can't ever drink. That's not something that has characterized us. So legalism in that way. Now, legalism would also forbid other things like smoking, right? You shall not smoke. What else was part of this legalism? Um, going to movies. Actually, that's one of the few that I'd say, eh, there's some reason to that one. Um, you shall not dance. But we have father-daughter dances and wedding dances in the atrium of our church, right? And so, in certain ways, these things, the churches that teach these things, they're, they're, they're few and far between today. And so legalism, when you say, well, he's a legalist, and you think about this series of, of stances that is largely viewed as being at the essence of legalism, there, there, there's not many legalistic churches today. And so now the term that's used for the Pharisees is not legalism, but you're a moralist. Now, this is a, a more dangerous term. And uh, a term that I encourage you to be very much on guard against when someone says this. Because legalism said, you know, you make up your laws and they're not God's law. But moralism seems to say that you are a Pharisee if you want to obey God's law right? You're a moralist. And it's certainly true that people can think they're just fine by God's law and be self-righteous. But maybe it would be better to speak about self-righteousness, which the Bible does speak about, rather than moralism, right? Because when you call someone a moralist, what you're saying about them is that they're seeking to obey God's moral law. And the moral law is, as we saw last week in Jesus speaking to this Pharisee who came to test him in the final time, the moral law is summed up by the two tables of the law, the, the, two, the two types of commandment God gave to Moses on the, on the mountaintop, the Ten Commandments, the, the first four that deal with our relationship with, with God Shall have no other gods before me, no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and you shall honor the Sabbath. And then the last six, which have to do with our relationship with man, right? And so you have the two tables of the law, and Jesus, when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment, says, well, the first is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then he says, and there's a second like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he sums up the entire moral law as loving God and loving your neighbor. All right? So if we call someone a moralist, that should be a compliment, shouldn't it? Uh, there's no way on earth that someone who loves God keeps the moral law in that realm and who loves neighbor keeps the moral law in that realm is someone bad? Is it possible? 
Now, if you're self-righteous and you think, well, I'm just great, and you don't see your sin, and you don't understand that you are an evil person, well, then you're getting into the realm of self-righteousness. But you're not a moralist at that point. You're not someone who's obeying God. In fact, you're loving yourself more than God, and you're loving yourself more than others, and you're denying what God says about himself and his holiness, and you're denying what God has told you to do to your fellow. Self-righteousness is hatred of God and hatred of other people. But moralism, are we to throw out the Ten Commandments? Are we to say that, that love for God is not something that draws us close to God? So the Pharisees are not moralists. Now, we have to say first, Phariseeism is not, and I'm gonna list a few things that Phariseeism is not. It is not obedience to the moral law. Seeking to obey God is the essence of faith. It's not opposed to faith. Phariseeism is not obedience to the moral law. When Jesus responds to the, the question saying, two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, the scribe who had asked him the question said, right teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that this scribe, this Pharisee had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this man said, yes, it is important to do that. And Jesus says to him, ah, brother, you're not far away. He doesn't say, oh, you're far. You're a moralist. You're wrong, right? So when you hear someone call Phariseeism moralism, you say to them, ooh, are you practicing a form of religion that denies its power, that claims the grace of Jesus Christ and says it's not going to change you. Change your behavior, change your heart. Ah, that's a Pharisee. But not being changed, not coming to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, that is Phariseeism? Nonsense. That's garbage and it's a lie from Satan. An absolute lie from Satan to say that to obey God is to be a Pharisee. Second, Phariseeism is not calling people to obey the law of God or teaching the law of God. Verses one through three, then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, and what did he say to them? He said, ignore the Pharisees, have nothing to do with them. They are wicked men, they're Pharisees. You shouldn't obey them, right? Well, you know it's not what he says. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Note that he says, they put themselves there. But he's not arguing with them, even though they're self-appointed. He's not arguing with that. He says, therefore, because they sit in Moses' seat, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and they do not do them. Phariseeism, the sin of the Pharisees, is not calling people to obey the law of God. It's not Phariseeism to teach people the law of God and to call them to obey them. In fact, Jesus says, hey, they've put themselves in Moses' seat, but regardless of how they got there, you do what they say, but don't do what they do because they speak 
a real great fight, but they don't fight a good fight. Now, if we want to say that Pharisaism is seeking to obey the law of God and teaching the law of God, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, this is the heart of Pharisaism. then Jesus was a Pharisee. Because these are the things that Jesus taught. You understand this, don't you? Jesus himself taught what people accuse the Pharisees of teaching and what people define as the sin of the Pharisees. So the scribe comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the law, what does it say? The scribe says to him, well, it says, you know, you're love the Lord your God and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yes, go do it. And you will inherit eternal life. And the scribe says to Jesus, whoa, well, who's my neighbor? Because he doesn't really want to love everyone, right? So Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. And at the end of the story, where the Samaritan helps the poor man when the scribe and the Levite and the priest go by, he asks this scribe, uh, now who was a neighbor to that man? And the scribe says, well, it was, it was a Samaritan. And the point Jesus is making is that your neighbor is anyone who's near you. It's not just those you love. And so he's saying to him, no, you can't get out of the, the commandment by saying, well, my neighbor is my friend, and this person's not my friend. He's not a Jew, and therefore, I don't have to treat him well. Everyone is required. <laughs> love for everyone is required of you. You're to love everyone. So the, at the end of the story, Jesus asks him, which one is your neighbor? Which one is the, the man's neighbor? And he says, the Samaritan. Jesus then says to him, what? to this man who asked him how to inherit eternal life. He says to him, go thou and do likewise. The final words of Jesus to that man are, go and love your neighbor. And we call that Pharisaism. But the Pharisees didn't want to do it. And you don't want to do it. And I don't want to do it. And we can't do it without the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we can't do it without faith. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus asking the path to eternal life. Jesus says, well, you know, keep the law. And he says, I've kept the law. And he says, well, one thing you lack. In other words, you haven't been quite complete vis-a-vis -vis the law. What I want you to do, rich young man, is to go and sell all you have and give to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Oh, we would say that's moralism, Jesus. That's wrong. You can't preach that, right? I mean, honestly, if you read Twitter and you listen to those who preach today, they will tell you time after time after time that to say that is wrong. It's legalism, it's moralism, it's calling people to obey rather than to trust. That we're to come to Jesus with empty hands and just say, fill me, fill me. And that faith is 
a nominal thing. It goes on in our minds, but the minute that it starts flowing through our hands, it becomes works, and it's wrong. And this great divide between the mind and the hands. Faith is in my mind. My hands, if I involve them in it, it becomes Phariseeism. If I try and actually live by my faith, it's wrong. James says, I'll show you my faith by what I do. And Paul teaches in Romans in the first chapter and the last that he's calling us as listeners to his book to the obedience of faith. The Bible doesn't teach that obedience is opposed to faith and that obedience is Phariseeism. What is Phariseeism then? If it's not teaching the law of God, calling people to obey the moral law, what is it? Well, it's quite clear. Jesus says they teach it, but they don't practice it. It's a religion that preaches holiness, but does not have it. You are a Pharisee if you call your kids to do things that you're not doing. If you catch your son looking at a website that's scurrilous and scandalous and you yourself in the evening when they're in bed look at the same kind of thing, that's Phariseeism. If you're a pastor and you call people to do things that you're not doing, it's Phariseeism. This is Phariseeism. Hypocrisy. Calling people to do something and not doing it yourself. Religion that preaches holiness but does not have the power of it is Phariseeism. Preaching a form of godliness but not having its power. Second, the religion of the Pharisees and the, the commitments of the Pharisees are huge on ceremony. So we find throughout the, Old Te- the New Testament that the members of the, the, the party of the Pharisees are those who are going throughout the early church and saying, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the, moral, the, the, the ceremonial law. You've got to do these things. And it's at the Jerusalem Council where they're arguing, do the new Christians have to be circumcised? That the party of the Pharisees stand up and say, they must be circumcised because they love their ceremonies. Ceremonies, the things that they do that are religious duties that are not loving God or loving neighbor, but just religious duties, they're big on them. They love them. They live for them. And so when this scribe in the last chapter said to Jesus, as we read in Mark, we don't find it in Matthew, but we find it in Mark, when he says to Jesus, you're right, Master, that to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself is more important, is more important than all the offerings and sacrifices, then Jesus says to him, amen, now you start to understand the kingdom of heaven. Because the Pharisees Well, they didn't think they were sinless. They thought they were okay. But what they really thought is that by all the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the tithes that they obligated God to forgive them. They were convinced that by their ceremonies, they were putting God in their debt and therefore owed eternal life. And let me tell you, that is something that's rife in all of Christianity and here this morning. It's not a statement that I'm perfect. It's a statement that I'm pretty good. And where I fall, well, I'm a member of a Bible-believing church. 
We're taught good things. I go to small group. I do these things. And a failure to understand the death of your sin, the death of my sin. That's Phariseeism. So Phariseeism preaches holiness but doesn't have it. It's long on ceremonies. Jesus says the, the, the Pharisees strain at gnats and swallow camels. All right, now... Um, this is not found in the passage we're in, but it comes up in the verses that are ahead of us. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. That's enough out of you, all right? And you know how many people corrected me for saying cumin? I, I found that in, in some country that speaks English, they pronounce it cumin, so I'm living in that country, all right? <laughs> What are you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law? All right, now, here's Phariseeism. They don't distinguish between the weighty and less weighty provisions of the law. You understand? So they're as opposed to one beer as they are to a lie. You, you understand? Or they, they say to you, don't use the word S-H-I-T, but they actually take God's name in vain by saying my L-O-R-D or my G-O-D. The one being forbidden, the other being just crudeness, but they make the crudeness worse than the forbidden, all right? They have no sense of proportion. They define sin as they want to see it. This is these guys. And they don't understand. Now, I want to tell you, one of the great things my brother did for me when I first came alive in the Lord and I gave up drinking and I, I started seeing my sin and I started walking in the woods at night and repenting and confessing the sin of that day. I, I got back around my family after being in Alaska the summer where that happened. And uh, I said to my brother, well, I want to quit smoking. <laughs> I was one of the two guys at seminary who'd walk around campus with a cigarette in his hand. And I put it out before I went into the buildings and the classrooms, but I smoked for years. How many of you smoked? Yeah. I've said to my wife, if I'm told I'm going to die next week, I'm, I'm buying a pack of Cools. And, and she said to me, and if you buy that pack of Cools, you certainly will die next week. <laughs> uh, so I said to my brother, I want to quit drinking or smoking. And my brother, who had been very, very unhappy with my drinking, everyone in the family had known that I was, drink, that I was drinking heavily. He said, ah, David, you know, God will deal with that in time. Let's not worry about that one yet. Pharisees treat everything as though it's big. Some things are big and some things are small. Another example, using cigarettes. My father would come down to his coat in the morning when I was in high school and he'd, he'd brush against my down coat and he'd feel the outline of a pack of cools in the pocket. And so I'd go and I'd, I'd put on my coat and I'd go out for the day and I'd reach to get a cool out of the pocket because I never showed my cigarettes around my parents. And and I'd find it neatly sliced in two and put back in my pocket. And, oh, I have to find a new place to hide my cigarettes, you know? He never said a word, but he'd cut them in half if he found them. But when my dad detected pride in me, and it was there all the time, he'd say, David, right? He would let me have it. And for years, my dad could be counted on when he detected pride, and it was all the time. I mean, it wasn't every time he detected pride because it was always there. But he would say to me, David, David. Now, 
if you're more opposed to cigarettes than to pride in your children, all right? Or let me say, as happened to me when I was in high school, when I was experimenting with marijuana, and let me tell you, I hate marijuana. I think it's wrong. It's sinful. I really do. It's inebriation without any benefit. Um, but when I was experimenting with it, and we were caught in this, in this cottage down by the lake on a, on a youth retreat with trying to roll the fattest joint you've ever seen in your life, it was just, <laughs> we didn't know what we were doing. Um, the couple that caught us were coming down there to do what? In this abandoned cottage down by the lake. Well, they were coming there to make out. We had seen them in the back of a car the week before making out. They were going there to make out. They went back and they told the leaders that David and David and I can't remember the other guy are down there and they have marijuana. Well, the wrath of the entire church descended on us. Probably appropriately, all right? But not a word was said to them about what they were doing. Not a word. It was accepted as though that's just guys being guys and girls being girls. This is Pharisaism. Certainly the level of physical involvement we'd seen in the car the week before with this couple was enough that they should have been dealt with for what they were doing. And they acknowledged they were going down there for that purpose. So Pharisees, everything. Really the things that they dislike are the big things. They have no sense of proportion. Third, so they strain at gnats and they swallow camels. They yell at the, at the cigarette, but they accept the pride. Uh, Fourth, religion ties heavy burdens on but doesn't help, right? The religion of the Pharisees is a religion that ties a heavy burden on a person but doesn't help. And you say, well, how can that be? There's many, many instances of it. If we preach something and we say, you must, you must, but we don't sympathize with those who are struggling in that area and we don't offer to help and we don't pray for them, we don't recognize that we ourselves are just sinners like them, well, then we're tying heavy burdens on, but failing to help. Years ago, you sent me, and you sent me down to Terry Scheibel. Most of you weren't here then, but Terry Scheibel was being starved to death down in Florida by state sanction. And you sent me down there, some of you were here then, to protest it and to speak against the murder of this, this young woman. And I was there, and there were cops guarding the the gates to the hospice where she was being starved to death. And at the the eastern gate, which I hung out at, not the main gate, a secondary gate, there was a circular drive that went in, this is where you'd exit, not go in, there was a young cop, really young, baby-faced. And these preacher, I, I called them kind of condescendingly preacher boys, they came from a nearby seminary, and they'd, they'd come out and they'd stand there and they would shout messages of condemnation. You wicked, you this, you, you killers, you... And they'd be looking at this young cop and they'd be shouting at him, you know? And he would try and ignore them and keep walking back and forth. Well, my, my nephew was there. And some of you know Joseph and he's a quieter guy. He was a pastor at the time and still is. And I noticed him talking to this young cop one day, and he talked for most of the afternoon with him. 
And when evening came and we went for dinner, we said, what were you saying? What were you talking about? And he said, well, I was talking to him about why he's out there. And he said, I, he, we asked him to elaborate. And he said, well, he's new. He's just come on the force. He's only been on it about two weeks. And he, was, he told me that he was told that if he didn't come out there, he'd be fired and he'd never get another job as a cop. And so he's out there because, as he said to Joseph, it's, they tell me it's my duty. And my, my nephew said to this young man, your duty? They say it's your duty. And he said, yeah. And then my nephew said, he looked to them, and he said, yeah, they say it's my oath. And then with tears running down his face, he said, my oath to protect and serve. That was clear. He hated it. He hated being there. You know, the, the immensely cool thing was that there were two older cops who were Christians who were guarding this thing, and they, I, I don't excuse them, but they saw this young man, and they saw him being tormented by what he understood himself to be doing as sin. And despite the fact that every cop in Pinellas had been told that he had to be out there and no one could not do it, they got that young man out of there. And he was never back. We saw him driving around town, but for the rest of the two weeks, he was never brought back. The Pharisees stand and shout. They shout. But they won't help. Do you love sinners? Are you willing to open up your home to someone who needs a home so that they can stay away from sin? Let me say, if you're tempted to live with someone and to sleep with someone who you're not married to, my home is open to you until you're married. Many homes in this church are open to you. Let me say, beyond that, if you have a marriage that's going haywire, and you need to get away with your wife and to get things straight. Cheryl and I have a cottage up north, and we have a couple months when it's not being used, and if you want to go up there and you want to work on your marriage, we'd be happy to have you use it. And we're Pharisees. We really are. We're an awful lot like these guys. But boy, it's wonderful to be around people who are leaving sin behind, isn't it? And it's wonderful to help people. And the Pharisees get no joy out of it. They get more joy in condemnation than in helping. So I want to conclude by reading from Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, who writes, books and books have been written to show again and again how one is to recognize what true Christianity is. What is true Christianity? If Pharisaism is a counterfeit, what is true? He writes, nature is acoustic. Only heed what the echo answers, and you will know at once what is what. So, when in this world one preaches Christianity in such a way that the echo answers your preaching, glorious, profound, serious-minded Christian you should be exalted. You are so wise. You are a prince of preaching. Know then 
that this signifies that his preaching of Christianity is Christianly a terrible lie. It is not absolutely certain that he who walks with chains on his legs is a criminal, for there are instances where the civil magistrate has condemned an innocent man. But it is eternally certain that he who by preaching Christianity wins all things on earth, becoming wealthy and dignified and famous, he is a liar, a deceiver, who at one point or another has falsified the doctrine which by God has been so designed in such a militant relationship to the world that it's eternally impossible to preach what is Christian truth without having to suffer in this world, to be repudiated, hated, and cursed. You understand? Pharisees want to be lauded for their preaching. And Kierkegaard's right. If you're lauded for what you're preaching and you're said, oh, what wonders, what wisdom, it's not, it's not Christianity. When one preaches Christianity in such a way that the echo answers, he's mad, know then that this signifies that there are considerable elements of truth in that preaching without its being, however, necessarily the Christianity of the New Testament. He may have hit the mark, but presumably he does not press hard enough either by his oral preaching or by the preaching of his life, so that Christianly speaking, he glides over things too easily. His preaching, after all, is not the Christianity of the New Testament. But when one preaches Christianity in such a way that the echo answers, away with that man from the earth, he does not deserve to live, know then that this is true Christianity, the Christianity of the New Testament. Without change, since the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, Capital punishment is the penalty for preaching Christianity as it truly is, hating oneself in order to love God. Hating oneself to hate everything in which one's life consists, everything to which one clings for the sake of which one selfishly would desire to have God's aid to get it or to console one that did not get it, console one for the loss of it. Without any change, capital punishment is the penalty for preaching this in this character. Pharisees love the approval of men. True Christianity gets, gains the approval of God and the hatred of man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will deliver us from the scourge of Pharisaism. Forgive our pride, Father. Cleanse us of it. May we not be people who think more of ourselves than we think of you and others. May we love others more than ourselves and you with our, our heart and soul and mind and strength. And may we be moral men and women who love God and love our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.